Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers, leaders, and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master. Listen and get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, and this is where product leaders and managers make their move to product masters, learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so you'll create products that your customers love. This episode is about pricing. A lot of product managers are not very involved in pricing decisions. If you are one of them, you should change that. Our guest, Ben Malakoff, learned how to price products, and in his interview, he shares what you'll need to know to be part of pricing decisions, increasing your influence. Ben has held several product management roles in his career and is now the Senior Director for Sales Operations at Fisco Note. And remember, we take notes for you. So if you hear anything you want to go back to, you'll find a summary of all the juicy details at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 280. Also, we recorded a bonus question with Ben that is only written in that summary. You'll find at the end of the summary, the question I asked him is, what are the common mistakes you see with product pricing? Again, check it out at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 280. Now to the discussion. Ben, welcome to the Everyday Innovator podcast. Thank you for having me. So we're going to dive into a topic that we haven't covered a lot, I don't think adequately yet. Uh, so many great topics in product management uh, to cover. For. And this one is about pricing and how do we go about pricing a product. And uh, we don't always do that as well as we could. We might be leaving some money on the table, either being too high or too low. How did you become the go-to product guy for pricing? Uh, first, Chad, thank you for having me. It is great to be here. I always love to talk about pricing, so I'm excited to talk to you about it today. Uh, my thought on pricing is that it is an unloved, underinvested part of the commercial process in many, many companies. And my experience getting into pricing was uh, along those lines. Uh, so earlier in my career, I was always asking questions about pricing. Can we charge more for this? How do you, you know, develop a price for this product or that product? And then uh, one of my first real management roles, I was a director of product management for a software company called Matrix Care. On the first day, the CFO comes in, he says, hey, finance owns pricing today, but I don't think that we should. I think product should own pricing because it's more of a market-facing activity. And uh, I had my chance to flex my pricing muscles, and uh, I haven't looked back since. So um, I have owned pricing for that company, Matrix Care, for about five years, and my current company, Fiscal Note. Uh, for a couple of years as well. And I, I think it's, you know, the soul of a company. A lot of people don't invest in it or don't take time to really uh, do pricing well. But if you do, it pays significant dividends. So that's how I became the pricing guy. Yeah, if we're not in the sweet spot on pricing, right, the pricing that customers look at and go, yeah, that, that's a good value. Right? If we're too high, we don't get as many customers. If we're too low, uh, we, we, we are losing money right on the table. And you'll go into so many more details on that. <laughs> to talk through pricing, I think it'd be helpful to have an actual example. And the one that came to my mind, because I'm wanting to add one of these to my uh, kitchen uh, sometime soon, is uh, those new faucets that you can talk to, the kitchen faucets that you can talk to, and uh, whether they work through Alexa or something else. And I just said Alexa, which means I need to turn off mine. Um, and uh, you can tell you know, how much water you want and temperature, and they're just amazing. Uh, let's say we're in an organization that's making one of those. And I picked that because as a hardware piece, as a software piece, so hopefully this you know, appeals to more people doing consumer goods or something concrete or just you know, SaaS type software. 
um, let, let's say we've already made one. So we're in the context where we might have some historical information and we're now getting ready to release the new version. Um, if that's a good scenario, let's run with that and talk about the, just how do we start thinking about this? What are all the elements or the components that go into pricing? That's a great question. I love that example because it's hardware and software. My experience is mostly in B2B products, but there's probably a lot of similarities. So I'll go through this example. Uh, the other thing I wanted to say is that uh, when I talk to people about pricing, it's very much an art and a science. So some of the things I'll talk about are very scientific and very clear and concrete. Others are going to be a little bit more nebulous, and that's where some of the fun, but the challenge around pricing uh, comes in. Uh, so as we frame this, there's a few different pricing methodologies that uh, I'm familiar with and that I've used before. One is value-based. So what's the value that this product or service is going to provide and how do you price according to that? The next is what level is the market at? Uh, so market level could be set by what other competitors are paying. It could be set by commodity markets per se. Uh, that's one. Another one is cost plus. So I have a certain amount of goods and services that I need to build my product, and then I can really only get a certain margin on top of that. Pricing is probably pretty transparent in those types of markets. Um, for this one, there's probably some elements of value because this would be a new and exciting product that might be able to charge a premium, and probably some elements of cost as well because it is uh, you know, like a hardware product that would be uh, connected to uh, consumer goods and services. So. Uh, so I, when I work on pricing and when I help people with pricing, I think of it in three distinct phases. The first is data analysis. So what data do you have that can help you make decisions? The second is market research. So what sort of uh, investigation can you do of customers in the market to better inform your pricing decision? And the third is your pricing recommendations. So after you take all that data and information, how do you roll that up into an actionable pricing strategy? The first two are definitely the science and the third is the art. So let me walk through those one by one. The first one, data analysis. Uh, one of my mentors, John Damgard, who was the CEO of Matrix Care, used to say, in God we trust, all others bring facts. And it's a great uh, thing to remind yourself of in pricing because you'll get people around the table, whether it's your sales leaders, whether it's your customer service people, they're all gonna have an opinion about pricing but in order to make yours count, you have to bring data. So the types of data that I would suggest in this phase, if we're looking at the FOST example, would be unit sales. So how many units are you actually selling? Um, what are you selling in different segments or channels? You know, you might be selling some to home builders, you might be selling some directly to consumers. Discounting, so how much, how much do you need to discount in order to move a certain amount of product? And are more people buying with a discount or not buying with a discount? What's the market size? So with uh, faucets, for instance, you would say uh, new faucet purchases are probably uh, significantly impacted by new home construction as well as remodeling. Those sorts of things uh, pick up a lot more when economic times are good. They're not as good when economic times are bad or people are nervous about the economy. So figuring out what size is your market and what trajectory it's on is really important as well as how much of a new organic growth market do you have versus replacements? So let's say that no new homes were being built in the United States in the next 12 months, that would really impact your amount of these fancy faucet sales. Um, a few other things like attach rates with other products, uh, the cost that it takes you to build that faucet and to market and sell that faucet. I don't do a lot of cost-based pricing because I mostly work on software products, but there are many different products where you definitely need to consider that. So. 
there's any sort of like number of different types of data analysis that you can bring to the forefront. Uh, in this case, those are a couple of different examples that, uh, that I would use. The second is more of a market research element. So you would say, I have this great new faucet. It does these six or seven things. The main uh, exciting part of it is that it's voice activated. Where does that play in the market, like in the faucet market? Uh, is that uh, kind of comparable to other faucets? Can you charge a premium on that because many faucets are not voice activated? Uh, and so for this, you really want to dig into things like what are your competitors doing? What offerings do they have? Um, how much do they charge for their faucets? Do they charge a premium to other faucets or not? You also want to talk to your customers. That's probably going to be, I think, the most important activity in all of this is saying to your current and prospective customers, uh, you know, give me your opinions on this faucet. How much would you pay for it? Would you pay extra for a voice activated faucet? And they might say things like, I, a faucet is great, but I'm never going to use a voice activated one. So I'm not going to pay extra for it. Or they might say a voice activated faucet is the one thing I'm missing in my life. I'd love to pay you a million dollars for it. You just have to figure that out. And the way that you do that is by asking your customers. Uh, in B2C pricing activities, I think they often use lots and lots of data, so maybe lots and lots of surveys to figure these things out. That lets you do really interesting, fancy things like conjoint analysis, which can be helpful in those uh, situations. Uh, that'll help you get some semblance of pricing elasticity as well. Uh, in this market research phase, it's more of that qualitative uh, view of the marketplace. So let's say that you've done step one, which is all your data. Step two is all your market research, and you are ready to make a recommendation about pricing your fancy new faucet. Uh, at that point, that's where the art comes in and where you're taking something of a leap of faith. You're not going to know exactly what is the right price for your uh, faucet until you put it into the marketplace, but you'll have enough data to make a very educated guess and a very educated hypothesis that you can put out there. Um, and so at that point, you use your data use the other smart people you have around the table, use the market research you've done, and you assign a price. Um, so that's kind of a very basic way of articulating the pricing process. I've seen this used a lot. I think it is very successful. My, my message to people thinking about pricing and their products is not how do you do a fancier version of this? Like how do you go from this and do something better? It's how do you go from not doing any pricing work today, which is what I more often see, to making some investment in pricing in order to improve your sales and your margins and things like that. Okay. And so that some advance, some investment in pricing is just beyond what we might do that might be the, the easy path, right? Which is maybe cost plus is the easy path. What, what's going to be our margin on this product? And we're just going to do that, right? Um, or what are our competitors charging? And we have something that creates more value. We have this cool new feature that's going to be 10% better. Or we're just kind of on parity and we want to capture market share. We're going to do 10% less. Kind of the easy, you know, rule of thumb stuff. Um, this is a, a more thoughtful approach to really say, what data do we have available? What does that mean to us? And how can we go into the market with a, you know, a starting place? Absolutely. In my experience, if you do just this level of work, you will probably see a 10 to 20 times ROI on that investment. Wow. When it takes you an hour of work, a week of work, a month of work, you will see a significant return on that investment for pricing. I like to call it a low investment, high return activity. Mm -hmm. 
Good. Okay. So to walk through the, those components just a bit more with you, the first one there was the data analysis. And that we have an existing product in the marketplace and we're doing a new version of it, then we have data to pull from. And I like how you broke out some specifics there about, you know, looking at the, what are people paying in different segments? How much are our discounts making a difference or not? We've been running some kind of promotional programs. Uh, you, you said one thing I'm not familiar with, attach rates with other products. Is this yes. when the product goes, you know, maybe another product is actually purchased first and then that leads to this one? What, what is that? Uh, attach rates are when you calculate what products are selling together. So maybe your faucet is the first product and your sink is the second one or the dishwasher is the third. Uh, and figuring out when I sell product A, what products are generally sold with it. Uh, you know, with a faucet, maybe you don't sell any other products with it and people just buy the faucet a la carte, or maybe it's that they buy the faucet for the, the sink, but they also buy uh, faucets for the bathrooms as well at the mm -hmm. same time. That gives you insight into things like packaging. So what could you bundle with your faucet or what are some promotions you could have with your faucet? For instance, um, I am a strong believer that if you do all this work and you've nailed the number, like the actual price you charge, you've nailed probably like one, one fifth or one sixth of what you have to do for successful pricing. The other things you have to do are like packaging analysis. Mm. How do you train your team that's selling it? Uh, how do you respond to competitive threats? Uh, but uh, packaging and attach rates are definitely a really important piece of it. Okay. So here's a big insight for anyone in this space working on this product. I'm going to give you some voice of the customer right now related to this attach rate thing. Uh, so one reason why I want this faucet is when I'm working with, with meat in particularly, and I'm you know cooking either in the kitchen or often it's on the barbecue grill for me, I want this is because I, you know, fold the meat or, you know, if hamburgers for me and the hamburgers, whatever it is, go throw it on the grill and come back inside, the door's open, and my hands are a mess and I don't want to touch the faucet, right? So that that could be sell barbecue grills with this faucet. That There's some good voice of the customer feedback. Or can uh, I give you another example? Yeah, sure. You might have a, a technologically aspirational person, so someone who hasn't made the leap to buy an Alexa yet, but who says, you know what? If I can make my faucet go on using my voice, I would buy an Alexa. Hmm. And then you package the Alexa and the faucet together, uh, you know, and I'm sure you can get some sort of favorable deal for that. To me, that's a win. Mm -hmm. Yeah, makes good sense. So it's the enabling technology that's needed for this thing, if Absolutely. that's the, how it works. Okay. Um, and you said you work a lot with you know, SaaS kind of products. And that cost is less of a factor there to think about, mm -hmm. but it is still a factor, right? We have to have some some forecast of revenue projections that says what are we going to, how are we going to cover our burn rate to develop this thing, right? You do, you do less so. Uh, in in my experience, in the couple of SaaS companies that I've worked for and worked with, uh, the tenor in tone is that there's an opportunity to price uh, on more of a value based type of uh, type of methodology. And so in my couple, my couple of years of experience in the last two SaaS companies I've worked on, we usually try to get a three to five or five to 10 X ROI for our customers. So basically every dollar that they give to us, they'll get somewhere between three and $10 of value back. Uh, and so when you're doing that, you're typically way above what your cost is for your ongoing you know, support and Amazon web services and things like that. So from that perspective, cost is less of a factor where I find cost being a factor in SaaS businesses is when you have certain suppliers uh, or when you have, you know, other major expenses like people, that's where you have to control your costs more so than looking at, you know, the actual margin on your, uh, 
the products that you're selling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it obviously depends on on state of company and w- what scale you're at, and if you're Definitely. ramping up and the like. Okay, but but I like that benchmark that you shared. That you, you you've used that. You've seen that the three to ten uh, x ROI for SaaS products. Definitely. Okay. If you can calculate that ROI, which is a more in depth sort of exercise, and then even say that to your customer. Uh, hey, Mr. and Mrs. Customer, we've looked at this product, and while this is a significant investment, we think you'll get a three to five x ROI in these different ways. A very powerful discussion to have with your customer. Yeah, it is. You know, say we're building an expense reporting system, right? And mm-hmm. uh, we look at the company and we go through what they're doing now, and we say, okay, your every employee on your current system that's traveling is spending you know, thirty minutes a week on this. You know, with our system, it's going to be five minutes, mm-hmm. and that's a, that's an easy ROI calculation. Fantastic. Okay. I'm interrupting the discussion just for a moment to tell you about a really interesting experience I had recently at a professional conference for product managers and innovators, the annual PDMA conference. Now, it was a great experience because I got to help so many people. And one form of this was several times a person that I helped in the past, they came to find me. They sought me out to introduce me to someone else that they were talking to someone that wanted to mentor their product managers to help them perform at a higher level. They recognize how important product development and management is to the success of their work and the organization. And they talk about this in terms of the increased pressures that they have. We all recognize this as product people. Wanting to create products that customers love, that's what everyday innovators are all about, we get that. But also products that meet revenue and profit expectations, we have to do that. And that can be delivered more quickly, decreasing time to market. That's a lot of needs to deliver on, and that's exactly what I help organizations do. And I have an excellent mentoring system for groups of product managers. It's called the Rapid Product Mastery Experience, or for short, the RPM Experience. Kind of catchy, RPM Experience. If you lead product managers, or you are a product manager at a company with other product managers, the RPM Experience is how you can create a higher performing product team. And I have a quick guide that tells you how the system works and the results it provides. And you'll find that at theeverydayinnovator.com slash RPM. It's helping other companies pull ahead of their competition and helping product managers work together better, enjoy their work more, and just be more effective. And I bet it can help you too. Check it out at theeverydayinnovator.com slash RPM. So the market research aspects of this, um, you, you talked about some tools in there, like you know doing surveys to understand how customers might be thinking about a product, and we might do some you know max min type pricing analysis. Conjoint is a great tool for looking at configurations and you know how do we put together the right features that are the customer really desires at a price point that is most appealing to them, mm-hmm. and we, we do that by just research that says you know maybe here's four different packages you might be interested in, which one do you like the most, mm-hmm. right? And they're all at different price points, that sort of thing. Um, other types of, of research that you've been involved in or that you see being used for getting those kind of insights about customers? Let's see. Uh, a couple of things I'd recommend. First, I think you have to know your competitors cold. And so this isn't more of an analytical tool, but saying, what is it my competitors are doing and what do they offer? Uh, what I call it is like the price to value ratio. So it's the amount of value you provide versus the price that you have. If your value sort of outweighs your price, then you should probably be able to sell a lot. You're probably underpriced. If your price outweighs your value, you're going to be in trouble with your customers because they're likely not going to pay it or you're going to have to discount significantly. 
Um, and a lot of that price to value ratio is set by what your competitors are doing in the marketplace. And so you have to know that very, very well. Mm-hmm. That would be the first thing. Um, the second thing, uh, in terms of when you interview your customers from a market research perspective, you always have to ask their willingness to pay. Uh, Conjoint analysis is a great way to do that in like a survey form. Uh, I do recommend it for people who are a little bit more advanced on their pricing journey. For people who are more at the beginning, I think just having a strong number of customer interviews related to whatever product or service you're launching or have launched uh, and making sure that you have probably four to five questions about willingness to pay and in what different um, configurations or what different packages, that will probably give you enough data to make very informed decisions. Um, so those are just a couple of other things. Again, I'm I'm an evangelist of doing pricing work at all. The folks who are ready to do fancy analysis, uh, they probably know the things that I'm going to say right here. But I think that uh, I'm I'm more of a proponent of having those folks who are not doing any pricing work to start mm-hmm. doing pricing work because it has a, a high ROI. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I'm glad you mentioned that. That we're we're largely talking about going from. Uh, people are going from doing very little on pricing now, right? Maybe looking at the competitor's price and going by that to taking a step forward to something, right? And putting these three areas together. You know, how do we get our data, do that market research and come up with a pricing recommendation? And there are very sophisticated tools. And if you want to, if you've not done conjoint analysis, there's companies that you can go spend your money with and they'll be glad to do do a <laughs> study for you, right? So. You can do it yourself too. I um, think Qualtrics yes, uh, has a great uh, tool for doing that. Yeah, yeah. The the hard part that I've seen about that is how do you come up with the combinations that make the most sense to present to customers out of all the combinations you can, right? Yeah. So, so if you're looking at five dimensions, I forget what that is. You know, n squared minus one or something, right? Um, mm-hmm. Which which are the maybe the four that you want to actually present? So yeah, that's a great point. Um, but, but you're talking about, you know, in those interviews, talking about willingness to pay. And what, what does that look like? Is it just, can you say, you know, here's option one, maybe, you know, a picture and a benefit list, and here's option two. And you're just trying to get some ideas about how consumers react to that? Yeah, I would, I think you have to phrase it. I like to phrase it starting with maybe more general and going to more specific from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, more general would be, you know, out of this list of products, which ones do you find to be most valuable to you and why? Uh, and then you get a sense of where they're really attaching value. Uh, another question you can ask is, uh, where do you see organizations or where do you see like your budget organizations uh, charging for these types of products and services? And then it gets to a point of they're saying like, here's what I'm seeing in the marketplace. And then uh, once you've kind of warm them up, asking very specific questions. If I had this product, uh, what's the level that you're interested in paying for it? And then they'll give you sort of a, a sense of that. And then saying, like, if I added this product or I took away this product from that that offering or this feature, uh, how would that impact your decision and why? Um, so giving them a couple of different options, a few different scenarios. I don't think any one person is going to give you the answer, but when you take all of that data in aggregate, that will give you a pretty strong amount of direction of where you can price things and where people assign value as well. Um, so it's that combination of questions and having enough interviews or enough discussions to be able to ultimately do some quantitative analysis on the qualitative discussions you're having. 
And when you're doing that kind of a survey, you know, or or interview, as we were talking about, getting the pricing information, um, what about some other tools like doing the the smoke test, is one way it's called, or the landing page test, right? Where people will say, well, if I just ask the question, and you know, I'm not going to get the real information from customers, but if I actually sell them the product in a pseudo sell type scenario, and and they say, okay, I'll pay you money for that. And, you know, if they start the transaction with you, then you know, that's a pretty clear indication that they're interested in that. And you can, and you say whatever format the test is, right? You say, well, we're actually not ready to uh, release that yet, but we'll notify you, you know, when it is and give you a coupon or something. Um, what about tests like that? You've brought up a really good point and the difference between a more quantitative survey versus a one-to-one one type of interview. Um, there's a lot of potential for what I call leading the witness in the one-to-one -one type of interview where you say, I have this new product, it does all these things, it's really so much better than this competitor and uh, these features are going to give you so much value. How could you not pay so much money for this? Don't you want to pay a super high price for it? And while all those things may be true, it's unclear if in a more controlled environment or when they're not being influenced by a specific person, if they'll actually, if their, their feedback will hold up, will they actually pay that price? Uh, so you have to be a little careful when you are doing this research that you have to try to be as objective as possible and get their unvarnished feedback. Let's say that you do a great job of selling your product or service in these feedback interviews, and then you use that data to create your price. When you go to market, you might ultimately be pricing at a level that's not actually tenable because you did such a good job selling it, but the other people who are selling it maybe aren't as good a salesperson as you are or don't explain it the same way, or there isn't a salesperson involved in the transaction, that's where you might be really well served to uh, create some sort of a survey uh, that's more objectively delivered in order to get that feedback. Okay, uh, very good. So we need the data, we need to get some insights about customers and what their willingness to pay is. Now we're coming up with a price recommendation and we mm -hmm. put that together based on everything we just talked about. What do we do once that's in the marketplace? How are we looking at that, making adjustments? The best methodology I've seen is to have a very structured, uh, time-bound look at your pricing. So what I love about working with uh, SaaS companies and technology companies is their ability to change and pivot rapidly. If you put pricing in the marketplace and you're not getting the traction you want after six months, nine months, you can change it. You know, you can get feedback from your customers and your partners and do some of that additional data analysis and see how your pricing is reacting. Are you selling certain packages but not others? I'll give you an example. Uh, at uh, one organization I worked with, we did a pretty significant change in packaging and we launched somewhere between 10 and 15 packages. And after about six months, we found that we were having great success with probably four to five packages. Uh, and then there was maybe like three or four packages that no one had purchased. And really, in that case, we had created a, a, a package or a, a commercial solution that just no one was going to buy. It just like the, the need for that in the marketplace just really didn't exist. It, it sort of joined up two products that would never be sold together. Uh, and that was a great learning. And so we took it off the shelf and we, uh, we stopped investing resources in that per se. So uh, I find it's really, really helpful at the outset of a new set of pricing to say, I'm going to look at this at structured interview intervals, usually every 90 days or so, just to get a sense of where, how things are performing and how your pricing changes are being uh, received in the industry. Mm -hmm. Okay. So in that context, packaging is kind of the bundle of offerings that you're putting together. 
right? Um, like in my expense example, maybe we're doing an expense management system and a, along with that, a mile mileage management system. How many miles do you drive or something? And that could be offered as a package. Is that right? That is right. I would probably break it down more granularly uh, in the sense that if you have an expense management system, let's say that it has 25 different things that it, it does. And some of your buyers might be looking for a more premium solution that does everything and they only have to go to one provider, whereas others are more price sensitive, but really love your product. Right. In that case, I've seen uh, packaging of those different features. You might have package one has you know five features, package two has 12, and package three has all 20. I like to think of it that way because people I think people might think of bundles as like what other products can I go out and get? Whereas I think of packaging as how do you chunk up what you have into something that's attractive to many different segments? Okay, that makes sense. So we're using Zoom right now for our interaction here. Mm -hmm. And you know, they have their free package to get yeah. into. They have the pro package that gives you so many seats a month for, for rooms. They have the business one that adds some other features. They have the enterprise level. That's what we're talking about. Exactly. Okay. Okay, very good. And then for anyone in consumer goods, we also know packaging is very important. And mm -hmm. there's been some good research done on the influence that packaging has on buying. And if you're in that space, you're already aware of that. And um, that's the, something to take into account too. So Can I, may I give my two yeah. favorite packaging examples? Yeah. Okay. Uh, number one is the McDonald's value meal, which is much more akin to what you see in B2B situations. I have three different products the incremental cost to serve those products is probably pretty low. So if I have them buying one, I might as well just add on the second or the third and I can give them a discount. Um, so that's kind of package example number one from the consumer world. Package example number two is Lunchables. Everyone had Lunchables when they were a kid or you give them to your kids. It's a little bit of cheese, a little bit of meat and some crackers. The markup on those cheese, meat and crackers is insane. I'm not sure uh, if you have specific uh, experience. We, we have bought those for our kids, yes. There you go, there you go. And it is so much cheaper to just buy the crackers and the meat and the cheese and put them together yourself. But because it's in the attractive package that's easy to give to your kid, it doesn't take a lot of effort to buy it and then stick in the fridge and then put it in their backpack or give it to them after school, they can charge a premium for that. Now, in the B2C world, that's fairly common. Take a few things, put them together, and uh, a nice markup. Uh, in the B2B world, I find it's much more the value meal example where your incremental cost to serve is a lot lower. And so you can just add on a couple of additional products and gain uh, additional top-line sales and bottom-line margin as well. Yeah, exactly. You see what's selling already and what can you do to add more value. Okay, really good. Great to ask yourself when you're packaging, is this a Lunchable or is this a value? Right. <laughs> and those Lunchables get you on price, but they sure are convenient. They are, they are. Okay, so I like, I like this framework you offered us. Uh, this is great. So we look at uh, the data that we need to, to help get into a pricing decision, the market research that is also data, but market research specific about the customer, and then uh, put that together into a pricing recommendation. We could talk about other scenarios for sure, but in the sake of time, listeners know I love an innovation quote. What's the quote you have for us, and why did you choose that one? Sure. Uh, the quote I chose is by William Gibson. He's an author. It is, the future is already here. It's just not very evenly distributed. I chose this quote because I find it to be true so often. The inventions of the future already exist to a certain extent, whether it's a flying car or a hoverboard or something like that. They're just not mass produced or avail available to everyone. So the, the question is, you know, more so, 
how do you take those innovations and make them more widely available? Or how do you take a technology that exists and make it so that uh, it's able to be used by more people, either with a lower cost or better distribution? Uh, I just think it's a very clever take on innovation and something that uh, I try to think about now and then. Excellent. Great. And Ben, for anyone that wants to maybe just reach out and say thank you for sharing that information or follow up and uh, understand more about this, how can they do that? Where should they go? Uh, LinkedIn is the best place. I have a pretty active LinkedIn profile, uh, Ben Malikoff, and you can find me there. My current uh, role is at Fiscal Note, which is a uh, technology company in Washington, D.C., so you can find me on LinkedIn. Okay, excellent. I'll make sure those links are in the show notes to make it easy for people to get to your LinkedIn profile. Once again, I appreciate all the information, Ben. Thanks for having me. This is great. And I got a bonus question for you. Sounds good. Okay. So we talked about how to do pricing, and along the way, there's going to be some mistakes that get made. What are those common mistakes that you see? Uh, I have a couple. How much time do you have? <laughs> Let's say five or 10 minutes. How's that? Okay. Uh, I have a few. And uh, a lot of these things are not difficult to uh, avoid making these mistakes, but you just have to be conscious about it. Okay, so cardinal sin number one is not raising your prices every year. We all have uh, products and services. Uh, you have people who work at these companies who get raises. You have cost of goods that go up. Uh, you have to raise your prices every single year, whether it's 3%, whether it is the cost uh, of the consumer price index, or maybe you know, you've created some really great new features and functions and not charge your customer extra, and you need to recoup some of that cost on your annual price increase. But you have to increase... Uh, your price every year. In the software world, which is where I usually um, live and play, it's anywhere between 5 and 10%. Uh, below 5, you're probably leaving money on the table. Above 10, you might cause some retention risks. And people might say, what have you really done that is worth above 10%? So uh, that's number one. The second piece, I know that your audience is very innovation focused. And so a couple of years ago, I, I wrote a piece on LinkedIn about putting pricing up front when you are building new products and services. So when you're innovating, innovating with the price in mind, I think a lot of products are developed and months are spent planning, uh, you know, making sure that you're building the right things, making sure it's bug free, talking to customers. And as soon as the product gets out of test and is ready to go, someone says, hey, what should we charge for this? And I would advocate the opposite is much more fruitful from a business perspective, which is to say, we're building a product Here's the product we want to build. Before we start, what type of pricing do we think that we'll have in the marketplace? Because that will influence uh, some of the things we talked about. So how much do you charge? How do you package and price this? How do you bundle features together? Uh, that is a very, very low-cost, highly proactive way to improve the pricing for your products and your services. Okay, so start with the pricing in mind from the beginning. That should be part of our business case for the product. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Uh, and I'm going to do uh, just one more, um, which is what we talked about before, under-investing in pricing. Uh, often this happens because no one owns pricing. The finance person isn't sure if it's their job. The product manager says, I don't really do the price. That's this other team. The sales team says, don't touch my pricing. I want to own that. Uh, but what often happens is that there's just not enough focus on pricing. Uh, the analysis that we talked about before, at a certain level, you know, you could do that uh, in not as, not that much of an investment of time, in a reasonable amount of time. Uh, you know, more more investment you make, the higher your return will be. But I just think this is, like I said, a low investment, high return activity 
that um, will really pay dividends for uh, for people who are in innovation and product focused roles. Yeah, good. So when it comes to investing and pricing, um, you know, in your case, this is just capabilities that you learned and took on, mm -hmm. right? And so That's you right. made that personal investment. Um, yes. what's your advice to, uh, someone that's listening that says, okay, I don't, maybe we, maybe there's a pricing person in marketing I should go talk to and meet. Maybe we don't have anything. How do we start that? My biggest piece of advice is when someone says, how should we price this or who can do that work? Just raise your hand hmm. because like I said, it's not, it's usually not something that has an owner in most organizations. And so if you volunteer to take the lead on it, you will build all of these skills. These are all skills that you can learn through experience or learning from others who are more experienced in your organization or you know, from taking courses. Um, these are not things that you need like a specific master's degree for, for instance. I think that if you simply raise your hand and say, I'm gonna look into how to do that, you, you too can become a very well-versed pricing person. Okay, that's good. Any other common mistakes you wanna hit? Uh, just one more, uh, which is that people often think that they have to make their pricing very complex. Hmm. Uh, and it's often someone who has ownership of one product or service, but not a view of the entire portfolio that a client might be buying. And I think what you want to think about is that if you're one customer, you might buy five to 10 different products from one company. Uh, so if any one or two of them are just way too complex to understand, it really can derail your sales process. So think of it in, the, in that context. How do I price my products so that it is uh, easy enough to understand and easy enough to uh, have a customer digest? Yeah, and I would think that would be in alignment with what your objective is. And the example that came to mind when I was talking about recently was uh, Bosch when they wanted to enter the a new market, the U.S. market, with a uh, uh, circular saw. And mm -hmm. they very, you know, a commodity business, no, no mm -hmm. change in that business for a few decades. Uh, and they innovated creating a better saw. And mm -hmm. now they had an option, right? Do we price it competitively? Say, okay, you're paying 80 bucks. You can buy ours for 80 bucks and it's this much, has all these other things. Yeah. Or because it's better, is it worth 90 bucks? Um, and whatever your strategy is, all right? I think in their case, their strategy was, we want market penetration. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to price at the competitor's level, knowing that we offer more value. They built a better mousetrap. They, they yeah, that's it. Yep. Yeah. So, and people flocked to them and they did well. So, <laughs> okay. Thank you so much for adding uh, those uh, uh, wisdom about avoiding mistakes here and uh, how to put pricing to good use. And for all the other inf information, appreciate you being here, Ben. Thanks, Chad. It's been my pleasure. Thanks again for listening to The Everyday Innovator. This is where product leaders and managers make their move to product masters learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so you'll create products customers love. Find the written notes of the discussion with Ben, including that bonus question, what are the common mistakes you see with product pricing at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 280. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit theeverydayinnovator.com.